0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: Last week, the House passed a resolution formalizing the impeachment inquiry, clearing the way for televised hearings this month. In response, the Senate announced it was preparing for its role in the process, a possible Senate trial over which Chief Justice John Roberts would preside all these different branches of government bracing to exercise their powers as laid out in the founding documents. It seems we're always going back to them, interpreting and reinterpreting them, in what's become an increasingly arduous effort to govern ourselves. But seriously, can we govern ourselves? John Adams didn't think so. He said that any political system, monarchy, democracy, aristocracy, all were equally prey to the brutish nature of mankind. Jill Lepore, Harvard professor, New York staff writer, and prize-winning historian, released a sweeping history of the American experiment called These Truths. We're offering you another chance to hear that conversation about America's contested, confounded truths, Because it was a tonic.
0: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
1: Alexander Hamilton wondered whether societies of men really were capable of, quote, establishing good government from reflection and choice, or whether they are forever destined to defend their political constitutions on accident and force. You said... That was the question when the Constitution was being sold in the autumn of 1787
0: and every autumn since. That is the question of American history. For Hamilton and for the framers of the Constitution, they had the past as a historical record available to them to know that all other experiments had failed. And that's the incredible sense of fragility with which they greet this new experiment. I mean, they have this enlightenment empiricism, but they also have a lot of political wisdom from the study of history that leads them to believe that what they're undertaking is quite a tenuous endeavor. If anything, we're almost crippled by our sense of the stability. (laughs) of our arrangement because it hinders us from undertaking reform when reform is so urgently necessary. Mm -hmm. So the framers, they're not on bended knee worshiping the sacred document of the Constitution. (laughs) In their lifetimes, they're rejiggering it. They're confronting its deep... And fundamental inadequacy to address the problems of inequality that is failure to address the institution of slavery. Represent. I mean, that's the f- struggle for the first decades of American history and remains a struggle that we inherit through forms of racial inequality and racial injustice today that would have been recognizable to them but that they didn't fix and they didn't foresee how to fix. You wrote that our founding truths
1: were equality, sovereignty, and consent— newspapers were entirely and enthusiastically partisan. In fact, their delivery was subsidized, whereas in Europe they were taxed. Did they have an impact on the debate over equality, over the power of the central government versus the states, over slavery, over liberty?
0: Our republic does not preexist exist newspapers. It is dependent on newspapers. And that's where our party system comes from, because the Constitution is generally printed by newspaper printers and often included in the newspaper as a broadsheet, you know, in a kind of giveaway, come get your free copy of the Constitution while you debate about ratification. And in most cities, there would be a newspaper printer who was a federalist who was going to support ratification. And there'd be a newspaper printer who was an anti-federalist, and they would battle it out. They believed, as Benjamin Franklin believed, that what's meant by the freedom of the press is that printers should be free to express views so that readers could decide which view was right. That notion of kind of the battle of opinion was how the ratification debate took place. And after the Constitution was finally ratified, that division remained in place. There were these Federalist printers, and then there were printers Mm -hmm. who were not really so down with the Federalists, and they become the Jeffersonian Democrats. That division among printers builds the first-party system. And already by the early 1790s, Madison can see that that's happening. And he says, well, you know, we thought that factions would be bad, but it turns out newspapers are like the circulation of the blood of the body politic. And as long as we have enough newspapers, we might be okay.
1: One constant tension in the American argument seems to involve the relationship between business and government – There were a lot of anti-corruption measures in the original documents. Jump ahead to the 20s, you have Herbert Hoover, the great engineer, the proto-technocrat. He believed that nothing better represented America's philosophy of moral progress than the leaders of American business. Hoover
0: is a deeply humane man. I mean, he came from nothing, went to Stanford, became a mining engineer, and made an enormous amount of money and then spent most of his life working as a philanthropist, doing aid to refugees. Uh, Really, he was chiefly a humanitarian. And he had the idea that other businessmen had the same moral probity as he did. And with that moral probity, what was necessary by way of reforming the political arrangements of the United States in the era of advanced industrial capitalism could be done outside of the realm of government, through the moral leadership of the businessman. This is at a time when, of course, populists, who in the 19th century and early 20th century are on the left, not the right, so farmers and poor workers, factory workers, are urging the federal government to rein in corporate power. And Hoover's one of these guys, like, no, we don't actually need to do that. Businessmen will restrain business because businessmen can be good people. And it looks naive, except if you think about how deeply Hoover himself in his own life was committed to that. He was president when
1: radio was on the rise, and he felt that government did have a role here in ensuring that radio reached its potential to make America,
0: he said, literally one people. While he was secretary of commerce, radio was just starting, and radio when it started, of course, was really just kind of like point-to-point communication like a telephone, Hoover is very far-sighted about it he holds a series of annual conferences at the White House while he's Secretary of Commerce and he continues that work when he becomes president where he just brings together people from you know, RCA the Radio Broadcasting Corporation of America and people from the press and from manufacturing to talk about what radio could do and what the federal government's role would be in it and he, comes to believe, kind of in a kind of throwback to Madison's belief about newspapers Mm -hmm. that newspapers would be like the blood in the circulation of the American body politic, that radio will be that new thing. And so we should think about how to make sure that it is available to everybody. By the end of the 1930s everybody, pretty much everybody in the country has a radio. There's this incredibly powerful national network that is made possible by what Hoover sets up. But it didn't make us literally one people. It didn't make us literally one people, but I would say the 1930s 30s are the best example of a national culture that is committed to a sense of shared burden. You always have to put an asterisk after that and say, okay, but like, except for dealing with race and Jim Crow and lynching. Right. <laughs> but nevertheless, the sense of we're all in the same boat that is part of the culture of the Depression is actually advanced by radio. Franklin Roosevelt, Pushed Hoover out of the White House in
1: 1932. Roosevelt was famously great at radio obviously, we'll never know exactly how much FDR's win hinged on the message and how much
0: on the medium. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I had forgotten about FDR is that he had perfected the use of the radio when he was governor of New York. He would do the same Hmm. thing, these sort of weekly radio addresses, and it was extremely effective for him. And one of the shrewdest observations I ever saw about that was made by Eleanor Roosevelt, who, you know, actually didn't have a whole lot of affection (laughs) in many ways for Mm -hmm. her husband. But She said, you know, when he was stricken with polio, that it affected the tone of his voice. You could Mm -hmm. hear it in his voice. You could hear that he cared, that he understood pain, and that that served him incredibly well at the time when he was running for office in, in 1932, when the nation was really struggling, when people just knocked down, bowed low, downcast, and hopeless, that there was something about Roosevelt's ability to communicate just in the breath that comes over the radio what his knowledge really was of that. I have a
1: clip of him during that campaign describing two theories of prosperity and well-being.
0: First, the theory that if we make the rich richer, somehow they will let a part of their prosperity trickle through to the rest of us. And the second theory, And I suppose this second theory goes back to the days of Noah. I won't say to the days of Adam and Eve, because they had a less complicated situation to face. But very, very early in the history of mankind, there was that second theory that
1: if we make the average of mankind comfortable and make them secure in their existence, then their prosperity will rise upward
0: through the ranks. That sensibility participates in a demand of the entire population that we understand that we are in this together. And that's the piece of political rhetoric that we don't have anymore.
1: After the global financial crash, you quote Felix Frankfurter saying in 1930 that uh, epitaphs for democracy are the fashion of the day. And you quote a lot of other people on this. Did people think the American experiment?
0: Was over? People were worried the American experiment was over, but more, they were worried that democracies around the world were over and mm-hmm. that the only one left standing would be the United States. And so there's a, a lot of pressure on the United States to figure out a way to not fall for the sake of everyone else as huh. well as for its own sake. By 1939, when they're building the World's Fair. Incredible pavilion. This world of tomorrow is the theme of the world's fair. Outstanding landmark is the theme center. While the four
1: freedoms, speech, press, assembly, and religion, overlook Constitution Mall.
0: Thirty feet high, they symbolize the four rights of free Americans guaranteed by the Constitution. But there's this whole pavilion of nations. There's like a stall or whatever, an exhibit for every nation around the world. And by the time the thing opens, most of them have fallen to totalitarianism. And so they're sort of shrouded. Like there's just this this visible reckoning with authoritarian regime after regime after regime taking over democracies. So for FDR, when he comes to office, you know, in 1933, there's this incredible complicated situation where – a lot of people say you should take on the powers of a dictator to save the country from depression, but don't really take them on because we actually need to still be a democracy. But if we're really a democracy and we ask the people how to solve the banking crisis, we won't solve the banking crisis. Mm-hmm. A dem- you know, so it's a very tricky moment that Roosevelt navigates ultimately successfully, but there's a lot of concern. Because, of course, you know, these fascist regimes were democratically elected. They'd take and seize power, and Roosevelt seized a great deal of power from the executive office. You talk a lot about polls, and polls
1: seem to have grown in power and influence during this period. I wonder if they said something about our truths or purported to or about democracy.
0: Public opinion polling as we know it today begins in 1935 when George Gallup opens the American Institute for Public Opinion. And he's trying to offer measuring public opinion as the answer to fascism. Like fascists are going to use the radio and just tell people what to believe. But pollsters will use other for you know, – they'll call people up to ask people what they believe so we can know the public will at all time. Gallup publishes this – syndicated newspaper column called America Speaks. It runs all through the 40s and 50s and into the 60s. There's a lot of criticism of it. But what I find so concerning about polling in that era, I mean, there are many things I find concerning about it. But Gallup, for instance, didn't poll African Americans in the Jim Crow South ever. Because he knew they couldn't vote and he he was like trying to say how the public will vote. So there's incredible sort of suppression of public opinion, right? It actually restricts the political conversation from the start. There are these distorting effects of polling. You know, we see versions of that now as well. And then you had, of course, Dewey beats Truman. It's not just the newspapers that call that election wrong in 1948. It's TV, which is brand new. So when you get to 1952, there's this fascinating merger of political problems and political solutions where, like with the radio, which is surplus military equipment after the First World War, mainframe computers emerge as the intellectual property that's developed during the Second World War. They're built to crack codes and calculate missile trajectories. But the first commercial mainframe computer, the UNIVAC, is available in 1950. And they sell one to the U.S. Census Bureau. And meanwhile, television news networks say, well, we would like to get some viewers on election night. A lot of people now by 1952 have TVs, but they don't know how to make election night interesting. What are they going to do? <laughs> so actually, each network hires a different computer. One hires this thing called the robot, the monobot, but CBS hires the UNIVAC to predict the outcome of the election between Eisenhower and Stevenson. And it's actually, I mean, it would just be a fantastic sitcom. It's, a, it's this crazy madcap harem-scarum kind of disaster of a night with Walter Cronkite and Edward R. Murrow competing with this gigantic brain. They
1: seem to be invested in a kind of power to show America to itself. And this seemed to disgust the legendary newsman from CBS, Edward R. Murrow, in 1952, after the election of Eisenhower. He said that the people surprised the pollsters, the prophets, the politicians. They demonstrated that they are mysterious and their motives are not to be measured by mechanical means. The fact that the machine was defeated was a
0: victory for democracy, it sounded like. That's how Murrow wants to believe it worked out. (laughs) But but that's not how it worked out. What Murrow was worried about in 1952 was the automation of the practice of democracy That actually has come to pass. And what I argue later in the book is that the polarization that we are experiencing today in the United States was built manually, kind of voter by voter, by hand, in the 1970s and 1980s by campaign consultants, chiefly. But in the last 20 years, it's become fully automated. It's not necessary to do the same sort of hand-by-hand work to animate your electorate to the point of blind rage. That's done by machine now. That is exactly the kind of thing that Murrow was worried about a long time ago. And so if that's the case, then are the people sovereign? Are we consenting to be governed? Do we have natural rights? What is the nature of our political equality? There are all kinds of questions we have to ask ourselves in these different circumstances. So what was the impact then of
1: television on our truths and the debate over them Your book directs us to this. Lower taxes? Higher taxes. Record employment? Unemployment. Peace. War. Highest wages. Lower pay. State rights. Centralization of government. Whoa, stop! I've tried. I've listened to everybody. On TV and radio. I've read the papers and magazines. I've tried, but I'm still confused. Who's right? What's right? What should I believe? What are the facts? How can I tell? Well, my friend, if it's any consolation, you're not alone. Many voters are in the same boat right this minute. Words have been flying at you hot and heavy. You've heard the pros and cons, the cons and pros of both sides. You've listened to people you believe in and people you've never heard of. It's not surprising that you're confused. But beyond all the words, beyond all the claims and promises... There's actually just one big thing on which most people base their final decision. The man. Take this man. Dwight David Eisenhower. Ike. Soldier. Statesman. President. American.
0: Oh, they don't make him that good anymore. And yet,
1: (laughs) up until the word Eisenhower, you could have heard the very same thing today. Oh,
0: absolutely. No, absolutely. Especially, what are the facts? How can I tell? And then, don't worry about any of that stuff. Yeah. Well, you know what you wouldn't really hear is actually the voice of authority at the end. You Mm -hmm. would have to hear from some sort of ordinary American Mm -hmm. saying, like, while washing the car in the driveway with the puppy, oh, well, I really like Eisenhower. (laughs) What you're listening to there is the politics of mass persuasion, which doesn't really get a start until the age of mass production. It was followed by the age of mass consumption. And... Politics becomes a business. Political campaigns are run by people that start out in advertising agencies, and they use the tools of modern mass advertising. They use those tools to sell candidates to voters the way they sell soap or dishwashing detergent. And that's what you get. <laughs> it's actually really, really weird way yeah. to sell a candidate. But that is what we do now. I mean, I guess we do something different in a kind of online world because that is actually not an attack on Stevenson, notably. It's very sympathetic with the voter who's like, you know what, I don't know. I mean, these people both seem what reasonable. It doesn't require demonizing Adlai Stevenson. What was television doing
1: to our debate over our fundamental truths in mid-century?
0: Television was trying to do the same things that radio had tried to do. Network news was for sure trying to cultivate debate and cover politics. And on the whole, the age of network news, 48 to 78, say, was characterized by significantly less political polarization than either before or since. There's a lot that you could point to that's concerning about television in those years. But if you're interested in political moderation, that's what you get. Where our era of polarization really begins is when the remote control is invented in the 1970s and cable news first starts. People who aren't interested in politics stop voting because they tend to vote, according to this theory, During the golden age of television, because when they come home from work at 6 o'clock, the only thing that's on is television news. They pay more attention Mm because it's on TV. They tend to vote, and they tend to be moderates. And when cable starts, then suddenly when you come home from work, there are 260 things to watch, and you can watch reruns of Gilligan's Island, and then you stop voting because you kind of stop paying attention Mm -hmm. so that moderates drop out of the electorate in really significant ways with the rise of cable television. There are all these kind of curious little moments where we see quite clearly how— Symbiotically, our media and our politics have grown and how inseparable they are.
1: You conclude by saying what we feel every day, that the American experiment hasn't ended. What do you think are the truths that will ultimately hold it together? Or what do you think we're really fighting over still?
0: I think what's been unsettling for partisans on all sides and for moderates as well is the sense in recent years that really everything is back on the table. Things that appeared to have been political settlements of earlier generations seem now to be revealed as not settled at all. That made it very difficult to end this this book. I also was committed in writing the book to insist that the United States is founded on the idea of equality, but it is equally founded on the idea of inquiry, that an obligation of every citizen is to inquire into why the world is the way it is and how it can be made better and what it is about our national creed that sticks and works and what it is about our political practices that need reformation. That sounds great, but was that really a a fundamental truth? Yeah. The Declaration of Independence, let facts be submitted to a candid world. But, you know, Mm -hmm. our founding documents are full of commitments to proof and evidence and inquiry. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: they are themselves the product of people who read a great deal of history because they knew that that's where you could sort of see, well, what happens when you do this? And what happens when you do that? And what happens when a society is arranged this way? And what happens when this arrangement is tested? So to end a you know, 900-page account of American history with my verdict on the question that Alexander Hamilton asked, you know, can we rule ourselves? Can any people rule themselves with reflection and reason and choice and election? Or are we all just fated to descend into being ruled by accident and force? I can't answer that. The point of the book is to ask readers to reckon with that question, but that is an obligation of citizenship. Jill, thank you so much. Thank you.
1: Jill Lepore is the author of These Truths, A History of the United States. Thanks for listening to this podcast extra. This week on The Big Show, I speak to journalist Corey Robin about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. It is deep, and I humbly submit, utterly fascinating. While I have you here... If you haven't done so already, I urge you to go to onthemedia.org and subscribe to our newsletter. Meanwhile, see you Friday. I'm Brooke Gladstone.